Okay, if you, uh, if you have your Bibles, let's go uh, Luke chapter 6. At some point, they'll go through the creepy curtain, uh, and they'll go up the spooky stairs. And so, uh, right here, people, you know, this is where the magic's happening today. All right, so Luke chapter 6. Um, so, so far in our journey through this series of, of Luke 4 through 6, uh, we prayerfully have seen uh, many aspects about Jesus come in uh, to better focus. Uh, in fact, if you'll remember, the series began with a very specific proclamation uh, that Jesus makes about himself. And, and the setting was he, he's in church and it's, he's teaching in the temple and uh, the attendant hands him the scroll and, uh, and it's a scroll of Isaiah. And so he makes his way to what uh, we call this, like the 40th or the 60th chapter. Um, and he, he says this. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me uh, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And, and as he rolled the scroll and he handed it back, he sits down and with all eyes fixed on him, he says, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And, uh, I mean, and, and so, so what's followed is this pursuit toward, toward seeing Jesus, uh, to really seeing these things fleshed out in the actions and the words and, and the footsteps of, of Jesus. And after all, it's, it's one thing to claim power and strength and authority and, and purpose uh, and it's another thing to actually fulfill that that claim. Uh, it's kind of like um, making the claim you're going to clean your house, uh, but it really doesn't mean anything if you end up laying on the couch all day watching Netflix, right? You didn't get any closer to actually doing that. Some of you are like, well, yeah, that's a good day. I like to think that I'm going to do something, but yet I'm not really interested in doing that thing at all. Uh, and... And so it's, it's not until we start putting flesh to those bones that we can display our intentions and really people could trust our, our words. And, and so and this is in part, uh, it's what we've been doing these past really two months. And, and I think it's the beauty of the Gospels that, that, that we get to walk in the wake of Jesus and we get to investigate what he says about himself. And... And so, and I think just, just following in these chapters, we've seen Jesus display authority in, in his teaching uh, and uh, over demons and authority over physical ailments. And, and we've tried to be very careful to not limit our scope of Jesus into any of these compartments. Uh, but because cause what's happening is, he, is each of these is telling a larger story that, uh, that Jesus is our long-awaited Messiah, and who takes away uh, our sins to the ransom of, of his body. That's, that's what Jesus is working towards uh, in the Gospels. And so, so when we walked into uh, chapter 5, we saw this concentrated effort of Luke to, to explain to us or to display to us uh, the holiness of Jesus. In fact, it started, if you'll remember, he calls Simon Peter to follow him by, by first providing this miraculous catch of of fish, and then we follow Jesus as he heals a man who is 
full of leprosy. And then he heals a paralytic who's being lowered uh, through the roof. And, and toward the end of the chapter, he walks into the market and he, he's right before, right in front of Levi, the tax collector. And he says, hey, Levi, follow me. To which Levi does, again, remember what we said, he does the only thing that, that he really can do at that moment. He pushes his chair back, he stands up, and he follows him. And then where he follows Jesus is ironic because uh, they go to, his, to Levi's house uh, where Levi throws a feast for um, Jesus and, and he ends up inviting the people who would show up, which is at this point in his life just tax collectors and, and sinners. And, and what we did is we took this bird's eye view of the effects that Jesus' holiness has on us. That We said at first he has a holiness that exposes us to ourselves. Uh, Peter's response, if you'll remember, was uh, instead of saying, oh my gosh, thanks for all the fish, he falls to his knees and he says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And then we saw how Jesus' holiness, uh, he has a holiness that cleanses us before God and how he has a holiness that, that legitimately forgives our sins. And then, and then lastly, as we were building towards it, that Jesus' holiness calls sinners to repentance. And, and we said that's, that's, that's a great cause for celebration today, uh, that Jesus calls us to repentance. And, and then beginning in, in verse 30, uh, really through the first half of, of chapter 6, uh, we've found ourselves in these episodes of interactions that Jesus is having with the Pharisees and, and the scribes. And, uh, and, and really what's happening is they, the Pharisees and the scribes, they seem to be stalking Jesus. Uh, that wherever Jesus is found, they're somewhere in the vicinity. And, and, and so, and we said last week that, uh, that much of their objection uh, with Jesus is, is just the simple fact that he doesn't look like them. And he doesn't act like them. And that's, that's an issue for them. In fact, they, I don't think they would mind Jesus' teachings and they wouldn't mind his actions if he would just be more willing to do things that don't expose them. Uh, and that's, that's ultimately what Jesus is doing. He's exposing uh, the church. And, and so along the way, we've, we've kind of picked up some advice in avoiding becoming a Pharisee in our own hearts. And, and it kind of started, so far we've said, you know, that, that we would not, we should not uh, use our personal religious example as a requirement that everyone else has to obey. Uh, that, that especially if we're adding on to what God has declared. And then, then secondly, we said, you know, don't make religious rules more important than God himself. And, and so, and through that, uh, what we've been able to explore are, are really two questions regarding Christian worship. Uh, for instance, uh, when it comes to following Jesus, do we, should we fast and pray or, or do we eat and drink? And, and we said the answer to that is both. Uh, that, that there's a time to fast and a desire to press deeper into relationship with God. And then there's a time to feast uh, because the presence of God is so thick that celebration is, is fitting. And then last week we asked this question of, of when it comes to following Jesus, should we, should we serve the law or should we serve the Son? And the answer is that, and I don't, I don't think I did a good job explaining that uh, last week, and I don't think I'm going to do a good job here, um, but just walk with me. Um, but I think the answer is that, that in serving the Son, 
You fulfill the demands of the law because He fulfills the demands of the law for us. And so which is it? Do we follow the law or do we follow Jesus? And, and the answer is, is really both of those things because in serving Jesus, He fulfills the law on our behalf. If you remember a couple weeks ago, we went to Galatians chapter 3 and it says, but the scripture, uh, so the word and the law imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. And I can't wait. One day we're going to go Galatians, uh, and it's an incredible letter. And so, so now we're, we're going to be in, in a new scene this morning uh, that, again, uh, a couple weeks ago, I originally intended to cover the last three weeks all in one, uh, but I, I was afraid we were going to be moving too quickly. Uh, and so, so what this is going to do is that it'll sort of bring an arc to an end uh, where, uh, and, and we'll end up transitioning to a few months of focusing not on uh, as much of Jesus' actions, but we'll start spending a concentrated time on, on his teaching. Uh, and so, so we had this scene two weeks ago where the Pharisees and the scribes are at the dinner party at Levi's and they bring up this question about fasting, right? Uh, and then last week, they're lurking and they're stalking Jesus and his disciples who are in a field uh, and they object to them plucking grain out of the field uh, and rubbing it in their hands because they're doing this on the Sabbath. And now we find ourselves with, again, all the common characters assembled. In, in chapter 6, beginning in, in verse 6. And it starts with this. On another Sabbath, he, being Jesus, entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. And if you like to underline your Bible, this is important. So that they might find a reason to accuse him, being Jesus. But Jesus knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come, stand here. And he rose and he stood there, and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them, all he said to <laughs> I'm sorry, after looking around at them, all he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so when his hand was restored. In verse 11, But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Okay? So, so that what they might do to Jesus is different than what they might do for Jesus. Alright? You with? There's, it's a subtle difference. They think what they might do to Jesus. So, so here we are. We're on another Sabbath, okay? So we're, we're not moving um, from, from day to day, but rather we're moving from moment to moment in this gospel. 
Uh, in fact, Jesus was teaching in the synagogue, and there's a man with his withered hand, and there are, there are some commentators who believe, based on verse 7, uh, who, who wonder, I should say, if this guy was planted in the synagogue at this time by the Pharisees, or is this just simply an opportunity that's presenting itself? And it really, it doesn't matter, uh, because neither the Pharisees nor the man are the focus, because as always, when Jesus is in the room, he's always the focus. And so, so, so nonetheless, the Pharisees, they serve and they are skeptics of Jesus. And, and, and let me just say this, if, uh, to, to any skeptics that we have uh, in this room, uh, firstly, uh, we're glad you're here. We are, and we, we believe um, that your skepticism can lead to a profound place as you investigate Jesus. Uh, we firmly believe that your questions are important and your wading into the waters instead of just jumping off of a cliff is a valid approach to understanding your need to be made right with God through Jesus. That's, that's valid. Uh, and, and I would, uh, uh, if you're not a skeptic and you are a, a cliff jumper, you know, I would encourage you to slow your roll when you encounter skeptics uh, because not everybody just jumps off of a cliff, Okay. Uh, some people need that time to wade into those waters, which again is the model we see with Jesus. That he, before he says, uh, believe in me, he says, follow me, right? And so all of that skepticism is okay. In fact, I think to a degree, the scribes and the Pharisees represent your position. I think, I think God has kindly, very kindly included them in the gospel narratives so that, that you can learn from their position and possibly learn from their mistakes, because the mistakes is, is that their position was to watch Jesus, not to find evidence that would lead them to Jesus, but to find something to accuse him with. They, they are in the synagogue on the day of worship, hearing the word of God taught, literally looking for a miracle, a miracle that they know he can do because they've seen him do it before, not so that they can believe in him, but so they can outright reject him. And in, in, in social sciences, we call this confirmation bias. Uh, in fact, uh, I think it's a, it's a major player in, in our society, but in particular, it's a major player in our politics of today. Because confirmation bias happens when a person takes whatever evidence that is contrary to their position and interprets that evidence uh, in a way that confirms their position. Uh, in fact, uh, this is how Republicans and Democrats can look at the same statistics and then claim the high ground over their opponents. Have you ever, have you ever noticed that? You're like, no, I think y'all are both looking at the same thing, but you're looking at it from completely different perspectives. And, and in this case, you both can't be right. <laughs> and so, so when we operate with a confirmation basis or bias, um, we, we don't really adjust our thinking when new evidence is, is presented, we, we rearrange that evidence and we leave our, our bias undisturbed. And the problem is it's just not honest thinking. Uh, that evidence proves something. And if, you are, if it's contrary to your belief, that, that means your belief should adjust. And, and so, so if you're a bit skeptical of Jesus, again, we're glad you're here, uh, but I would, I would encourage you to beware of, of confirmation bias because what happens is it will blind you. It will blind you just like it blinded the Pharisees and the scribes. That, so, so see the evidence, let the evidence speak for itself, and then 
follow the evidence wherever it, it may lead. And, and I think if you pay, uh, I, would, I should say, pay particular attention when the evidence feels most threatening or inconvenient to you. Uh, because that's where your bias will be lurking. And, and so I, I love what's happening as we arrive in, in verse 8. Because Jesus has this incredible sense of the dramatic. He does. In fact, uh, knowing what they think, he sets up a confrontation. Okay? Uh, in fact, uh, he, he, could have, he could have waited a few hours for the Sabbath to be over to heal this guy. Uh, he, he could have met this guy in private. Uh, but yet, Jesus sets up this, this confrontation. Uh, and it's not so much between himself and them, but, but it's really between what they are thinking and what they know is right. So he poses this question in, in verse 9, he says, he says, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To, to save life or destroy it? And, and this brings us to a question to consider as, as we consider Christian worship. Should we, should we do good and save or do harm and destroy? And now the answer to that question should be obvious, but... But it, apparently it's not. And this is, this is what Jesus is kind of bringing to the surface by exposing the Pharisees. It's, it's kind of like asking, you know, why in the world would healing on the Sabbath be a problem? Because healing is, is good. It, it relieves suffering. It, it restores the body. And, and all of us would want to be healed if we were sick, no matter when that healing came, right? Like, like if, you, if you have a cold you want that cold over as quickly as possible. And so, so Jesus effectively asked, what is it about your understanding of the Sabbath, a holy day, that prevents people from doing holy and good things to, to bless others? And so the scribes and the Pharisees seem to assume their religious rules for the Sabbath are, are more important than the need of the people for worshiping on, on the Sabbath. And so, so again, here we come to a, a step to avoid, right? If you don't want to become a Pharisee, then don't do this thing. Don't make the rules more important than life itself. Because that's essentially what they're doing. They're making the rules more important. And so Jesus' question really adjusts their thinking, or at least it attempts to adjust their thinking, and it really attempts to adjust our thinking, doesn't it? Because, because consider, consider how Jesus thinks in verse 9. Uh, the question assumes a couple things. That number one, doing harm to anyone is not lawful. That, that number two, destroying life is not lawful. And then number three, that it's always the right time to do good. And it's always the right time uh, to save life. Because sometimes in matters of life and death, all that matters is life or death. And so, so these simple statements, to me at least, they seem obvious, don't they? But religious rules and our biases can blind us to what should be obvious. And so we, we might put it this way. To, to fail to do good or to save life when you can is in fact to do harm and to destroy life. That there's no, there's no neutrality in worship that, that Jesus teaches and models for us. We cannot pretend to worship Jesus and refuse to help those who are in need no matter when they come before us. Whether we, we like them or not, whether we agree with them or not, whether we understand them 
or not. Jesus says there's, there's never a time that you say the worship is more important than the service. And this is what's being modeled in verse 10, that we find this scene um, in, in two other places. Uh, so where we're at in Luke 6, uh, this scene is also described in, in Matthew chapter 12 and again in Mark chapter 3. And when we get to Mark's gospel, uh, he kind of he expands just a little bit. He says uh, that after Jesus asks them this question, he says that there's no answer. He says they're just completely silent. And he looked around at them with anger. Jesus looks at them with anger and he's grieved at the hardness of their hearts. So, so, so the religious Pharisee would, would tempt you to believe that you can be religious where the gospel calls us to be holy. And Jesus' Jesus' defense last week in the field was, was based on the word of God, but now this week his defense is, is based on the heart of God, that God gave the law to help people, not to hurt them. And so, so when we get to Matthew's telling of this account uh, in chapter 12 of his gospel, uh, he'll, be, he'll add at, with Jesus asking, okay guys, which one of you, I love the way he puts it, he goes, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. Right? Which, again, seems like an obvious answer. Like, you don't, like, your sheep doesn't fall into a pit, and you're like, hey, I'll be back tomorrow. And then he asks this question. Of much, of how much more value is a man than a sheep? And isn't that the the million-dollar question of our time? What is, what is the value of man? But we don't, let's just assume we don't like to think globally. Let's assume that we want to think the world revolves around us. Isn't that what we're trying to ask? What is, what is my value? What is, what is my worth? And religion will want to base that value on man's worth to God. And then it will want to create, you know, the qualifiers of, of how that plays itself out. And, and so it will say, if you're good, or if you do good, or if you're kind, if you do kind things, then, then you have greater value, therefore God would love you more. And, and the beauty of the gospel says, that we're going to base your worth not on your best moments. And we're going to base your worth not on your worst moments. We're going to base your worth on the Son. And the fact that He has ransomed you from death and He brings you to life, the fact that He has ransomed you and He brings you the forgiveness of your sins, that that your value is based on who Jesus is. That's who we are as Christians. That that we don't have to wonder. We don't have to go around trying to prove to one another, hey, I'm valuable, I'm valuable, I have worth, I have worth. Because the Gospel says you have worth because Jesus is infinitely worthy. So the beauty of it, if you're, if you're not in Christ, let me just tell you the beauty of this exchange is you no longer have to compete. You no longer have to look at your neighbors and say, well, I'm not as good as them. You no longer have to look at your relatives, your brothers, your sisters, your grandparents. You never have to look at them and say, well, I've never, I've, I'm not successful the way that they are. You never have to do that. Because in Christ, your worth is infinitely more valuable than anything you could ever accomplish on your own. 
So Christian, you, you, you have value, not because of what you bring to the table of God, but because you've been invited to feast at the king's table through faith in Jesus. And so what prayerfully Jesus is making obvious here in, in Luke 6 and Matthew 12 and Mark 3 is that, is that it's always the right time to do good for the glory of God. It's always the right time. That the Pharisees' issues at hand is, is an apparent breaking of their Sabbath rules. And, and now here's the thing, and this is probably the disconnect that we have um, these last two weeks as we've talked about the Sabbath, because that's been kind of brought to the surface, that, that we don't view the Sabbath the way that they did. And, and I think as I say that, there, there's both good and bad associated with our differing views. Where, where they were diligent in setting apart a time a uh, weekly time of saying no creation because I'm going to be filled by God, right? We say I'm too busy to spend time with God, and we go from, you know, I can't give you a day, God, so I'll give you a morning, and then a lot of us are like, I can't really give you a morning, so as long as, as, long as bag wraps it up by about 11.30, we'll be good, right? So I think we have differing views, and some of that's good, some of that's bad, uh, but, but nonetheless, that does not exclude us exclude us from this larger issue in that it's always an acceptable time for acts of mercy to minister to the physical and the spiritual needs of people. Or else, why would God put those people in your path to begin with? Right? Why, why would God bring need in front of you? And why would, he, why would He challenge you to be part of that solution or part of that through that service? Why would He do that if it wasn't regardless of the time, the moment to do so. Why would, why would he do it? And so, so our, our scene wraps up, and I don't know if you see, if you see it, but, but it wraps up strangely. Because Jesus has healed this guy, and again, Jesus is bigger than just a healer. Right? And so, so we have this hand that's restored, but we also have this continuing hardening of the hearts of those who had every opportunity to see Jesus clearly. And for me, what it, what it proves is that joy and tragedy can exist in the same space. Right? That's what it is. We can, we can be filled with joy because this guy who, who has his hand restored to him, but we also we can see the tragedy because in the same space you have these Pharisees whose hearts are going further and further and further from Jesus, and it's it's sad. And so, so here, I guess here's what we're going to transition in the next couple of weeks. But but becoming a Pharisee is really easy. It is. I mean, it just just require everyone to follow your own personal religious example, and then judge them when they fail. Okay, uh, make. Make your own religious rules more important than Jesus himself. Or, or, or make your own religious rules more important than the well-being of the others around us. Again, we, everything we do, everything we do as Christians is sent in this desire to help those who are far from God find life in Christ. That's it. Every act of service, every word of affirmation, everything that we do is in, in line with this pursuit. And so, so we might be surprised how easily our hearts slide in that direction. And, and so, so but, but worship that pleases the Lord has a very different character 
That, that God-pleasing worship, it emphasizes our joy, not merely our, our duty. It, it frees us to serve the Son rather than to attempt our, our own righteousness by the law. And then, then it frees us to do good. It frees us to save life in the midst of worship as an act of worship. What it does is we say, hey, I, w- I want to follow God. It doesn't mean I just want to follow God into this space on a Sunday morning, and then when we leave, I get to leave and I get to do whatever I want to do. That a lifestyle of worship at the end of the day rests in this important truth that Jesus Christ has come to save sinners so that we might be able to truly worship Him. That He's the Lord of worship and He tells us what pleases Him. So, these past couple of weeks, as we've talked about. Um, you know, serving people who are uh, marginalized or who the church says are, are untouchable, we, we get to this point where we say nobody's untouchable, right? Because if I, was un, if I was not untouchable, that means you're not untouchable. And then as we talk about the Sabbath, and really it's not the Sabbath, the Sabbath is just the day and the time, right? We get to learn this important principle that that A, God should be honored with our time, but then B, that should never get in the way of our service. You, you were never, you were never, 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 never too busy to glorify God. Never. There's never a moment you say, yeah, okay, God, I can come back to you in about 15 minutes. Uh, then we can, fit, we can fit this incredible thing you're going to do through me and around me for someone else. We can fit that in then. And some of us are out of tune with the Holy Spirit because we think that that's the way it should operate. Like, ah. Have you, ever, have you ever had a day that you thought was going to be a day for you and then it turned out to not be a day for you? And have you ever wrestled with that selfishness and complaints of, God, where, oh, I just wanted a day... And God's like, I don't, I don't care. Like I'm doing something powerful and glory-filled in you and around you and through you. So the Pharisee in us would say, God, here's the thing. Let's talk about the way this is supposed to play itself out. And the gospel inside this says, God, whenever, whatever, let's go. So my prayer, again, we'll, we'll transition to some teaching uh, these next couple weeks, but, but my prayer here is that, is that the Lord would cure the lurking Pharisee in us. And then I think that, that my prayer is that the Lord's example would show us how to respond to God's love in, in pure worship. Pure worship. Our desire this week is to love God by... Eleven people. There we go. Let's do that again. Because Amy was the she was the best one. And so if you heard her, let's match that kind of energy. Ready? Our desire this week is to love God by There we go. Can we agree that the first time was not good at all? Yeah? Yeah, we can. All right. Yeah. All right. Suck it up, buttercup. Let's do it right next week. All right. So hey, before we close out, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna transition and uh we're gonna end in a new different way. Um uh, just this week, I say new different way, like this is a new thing. Um, so, so we have a graduating senior 
uh, Miss, Miss Presley Massey, right, um, who has not only graduated high school, but has convinced her parents to pay for her to go to a college uh, in the fall, right, which you should be grateful for um, because apparently that's expensive. Um, and so, I don't know, I got, you know, small town pastor money, so it's not a problem for me, um, as long as my kids get scholarships. Uh, and so, anyways, we want to we end today um, by, by taking some time to pray over uh, Presley. And so, um, we're going to do that. So, Presley, if you don't mind, we're, let's do this. In fact, uh, church family, if you want to come on up, let's gather around her. This is weird, right? <laughs> so Presley will be going to uh, Friends University, which I'm assured is not a university based on the television show. Uh, <laughs> you investigated it. Yeah, we'll see. And so we're, we are excited that, that, A, she's done the hard work to graduate. Uh, and then secondly, that she has this incredible adventure ahead. And so uh, let, us, let us pray for her. Father, we come to you and we, just, we thank you uh, that you've allowed us to be part of uh, Presley's life. Uh, we thank you that you allow us at Merge to be part of uh, the Massey's lives and that we get to share in this adventure and we get to, to celebrate over her and... Father, I, I lift up Presley to you, that you would um, help her understand the significance of living for you. That as she transitions from um, almost what seems to be overnight, from, from being a kid to being an adult, that you would impress upon her, actually, Father, that you would lavish her with your love, and that as... Uh, as a response to that love, that she would want to live for you. She would want to glorify you. She would want you in the conversations of, of relationships and, and career choices and, and places to live. Father, I pray for um, her parents, for Brandon and Amy, that, that uh, as, as she transitions, that they would be able to transition well that you would ease their um, stresses, that you would ease anxieties, that, that they would be able to worship you as you move us along. So, Father, we, we raise this Ebenezer to you, this moment of, of you've brought us thus far. And we say thank you. And we praise you because there are many more chapters ahead. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone say amen. amen. All right, God bless. You're dismissed.